Maybe we should put them under the dirt. I think it was their way. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 161 and 162, pressing on towards the end. We begin with Gregor and the Enforcer finding some human remains and end with the Mariner out of his element. We kick off this week with Gregor and the Enforcer arguably at the beginning of a Law & Order episode, just wandering around, checking things out, and then boom, dead bodies. <laughs> yeah, I find it, well, cinematically convenient that the first one that they walk into has bodies that turn out to obviously be Enola's parents. Mm -hmm. I guess that does actually kind of make sense because they were probably the last ones, which is why they tattooed Enola and sent her off. So, mm -hmm. okay, I guess that does make sense. There was nobody there to bury them. You're not wrong. It is rather cinematically convenient that the first hut that we go into is also the one With the that answers. they want us to go into. Yeah. Uh, you know, it it's fine. It doesn't bother me, though. I'd rather not watch them go hut to hut to hut before well, they discover a secret. I kind of do, because this is not the only interesting thing about this society is that they tattooed Enola and sent her off. There are other interesting things and other huts are going to tell us those things about their society and who they were. Based on how Helen enters the scene later on in this clip, I guess those other huts didn't have anything horrific in them. Probably more old world wonders because she enters and she's all smiles and happy and it's not until she notices the two skeletons that her mood darkens at all. Yeah. So you think that these skeletons are specifically Enola's parents? Well, I suppose I should retract that label as her parents. It's not necessarily her parents. It was just the last two adults. Right. I, in my notes, just referred to them as Enola's people. That seems reasonable, because it is quite unreasonable to expect that the last two adults would be married to each other. There's no reason to think that that would be true. And that they were the parents of a toddler-ish person mm -hmm. to send off. More likely, her parents died at some random time, probably separated from each other in time. I understand the parental instinct to preserve your child's life at all costs. It doesn't strike me as something that would happen... For two parents to tattoo their child, toss him in a boat, and let him go. Which is why I really like the idea of Enola not being cast off to float from the edge of the island, but being brought out to sea as part of a scouting party. That the people that we're finding in the hut here are just left over from an organizing leadership that sent people out from dry land to find help yeah, of some kind. We've talked about that before, that it actually makes a lot more sense that she was cast off from a boat as opposed to actual dry land. Mm -hmm. That begs the question, are there others like her? Are there other children of varying ages with tattoos on them that point the way to dry land? 
Oh, I think it's very likely. Yeah, I don't think we've ever considered that before, but it seems foolish not to. Yeah. Before we get into the tattooing stuff, yeah, the camera does sweep over the two skeletons lying on the pallet there. The novelization doesn't have too much to say about these bodies, but it does describe them as disease-blackened, which actually harkens back to the Raider script, because there's an illness in that script called Blackbone. It's a virus or bacteria of some kind, and it gets into the body, kills the host, and then leaves the bones black. It's never really explained how it's transmitted or what the symptoms are other than what it leaves behind. But one of the big things in the screenplay is that once Blackbone kills the person with it, Mm -hmm. the bones do not remain contagious. So... Coming into this situation, if you find a bunch of skeletons, your first thought is, oh, what killed them? Was it old age? Was it something more severe? And according to the screenplay and the novelization, there's nothing they need to worry about. It's not like there's a weird parasite that they're going to catch. In the movie, there is no indication of what happened here, Mm -hmm. why it's no longer a thriving community, when it obviously, within the last eight years, was to some level, a thriving community. So what happened that they sent Enola away? That's never even asked. There's no indication these people look to have died peacefully. They're even looking at each other. So I think that is a question that ought to have been at least raised in the movie. Yeah, I'm not as willing to say that the community was thriving. I think they were experiencing a population collapse. What's the ballpark number? For a survivable population. I think it's 20 couples. Oh, I thought it was 200. It's somewhere between 20 and 200 breeding couples for genetic diversity and prosper. So you think it was, at least the way it's presented in the movie, a simple colony collapse. Exactly. They're not having enough children to keep their numbers up. They're not having enough different families to keep their genetic diversity varied. It's kind of like what they had on the Atoll, where they needed drifters to breed with their women so that they could keep from inbreeding. And they didn't have that on dry land because no one has found dry land for some reason. Right. They don't have people coming and going that they could say, hey, we just need your DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Then you can leave. We just need some fresh DNA. We just need your seed. (laughs) Thinking back to the real world And when there were very few humans on the planet, like, how did they get around that problem? Well, for one, they crossbred with non-homo sapiens. For one, that's how they got genetic diversity. They also traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. That's how the world got populated. People migrated. People moved around. Nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. They encountered other people and grew their genetic diversity. There was also arguably no... Safety nets for people that were not genetically capable of surviving. Right. The world was was a lot more harsh then. Right. There was no medicine to help someone with a disorder survive. There was no therapies. Mm -hmm. There was no support programs. If you couldn't make it, you couldn't make it. Although you could argue that a people like that didn't necessarily become a society until they started helping others. That were hurt. I think there's That's a, a very interesting thing a, that you bring up. There's an anthropologist that once said that society truly started as soon as they began finding 
evidence of bones that had broken and had been healed because it meant that people were taking care of each other. There's a lot of debate around that statement, but essentially, yeah, sure. Upon discovering these skeletons, the enforcer says to Gregor, maybe we should put them under the dirt. I think that was their way. We saw earlier in this movie the people on the atoll interring their dead in the organo barge. So they had a version of burying people under the ground. It's just the ground they had was makeshift. The atoll elders had some sort of tradition that had been passed down or maybe document that they read from that described burying people under the ground. And so the enforcer would know through the atoll elders that dead bodies get buried and they got that tradition from when they lived on land, however many hundreds of years ago. The traditions of how people handle dead bodies, it does seem very strong to us in our Anglo-Saxon history to bury dead bodies. Our people and American people in general have been always been doing that. But around the world, that's very, very different. All sorts of cultures do all sorts of different things to their dead bodies. So the assumption of burying dead bodies is put forth by the enforcer. And also in their own way, they did the same thing. Does seem very American. Something that struck me about that statement. And then also in a few moments, we're going to see the tattooing tools, which are very like not white. They're very much of other cultures. It made me think of, well, this is Mount Everest. We know that. Right. So it's Tibet. So what do Tibetans do? So it makes sense that the people who are here should be Tibetan. Because when the floods came, they just didn't go anywhere or do anything. They're like, okay, we're cool. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that these people should be Tibetan. I don't know if this is the only way that they do it, but this is at least one way that they do it. They do what is called Tibetan sky burials. Okay. Where they feed their bodies to vultures. They put the bodies out in an accessible place and allow the bodies to be consumed by vultures. All right. It's a very circle of life way of looking at it. It is very circle of life way of looking at it. That's one of the things that kind of bothers me about the modern funeral industry here in America is that there's such an emphasis on embalming preservation. When you're buried, you're in a casket and that casket is in a cement box. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems very wasteful to me. Right. It's actively removing ourselves from that circle of life, which is, I think, rather selfish because we spend our whole lives participating in that circle, being the top of that circle. Mm-hmm. And then we refuse to participate in it when we're dead. There's a lot of hubris in that. There is a lot of hubris in that. For all I care, you can dump my body in the middle of the woods and just let me decompose. (laughs) That is an option. And if you want that, I can make that happen for you. That sounded weird, but I know that that is an option. Yeah. I know that I have mentioned to you personally, and I'm pretty sure on mic before, the YouTube channel Ask a Mortician Mm -hmm. with Caitlin Doherty. She is a mortician. I can't remember if she owns it or she runs it or she just works there. I think she owns it. A mortuary in California, and I can't remember the name of the mortuary off the top of my head, but that's what they specialize in. They'll do the other stuff, but they specialize in natural burials where no embalming, no treatment to the body. They put you in a linen sack. I was about to say burlap is fine. Yeah. Yeah. And bury you in a shallow grave. If they bury you at all, they might just put you on the ground and walk away, and that's it. 
And that's her personal favorite way. So it's absolutely an option. I can have you shipped out to California. There's probably local places. I was going to say, I don't want to get shipped out to California. What has California ever done for me? Following the enforcer's comments about burial, we have a shot where we're passing over a table covered in copies of Enola's tattoo, maybe rough drafts, maybe practice drafts, but next to those copies of the tattoo are a set of tattooing needles. Tattoo.com has a history of tattooing page that I found really helpful as I was researching this. It says, Most ancient cultures used tools like rose thorns, shark's teeth, and pelican bones to push pigments into the skin. Like the red ochre and soot, these pigments were also naturally obtained. With the invention of needles during the Iron Age, tattooing quickly adapted to this new equipment. One of the most common tattooing methods is called hand poking, or gently pushing the needle with ink into the skin. Compared to the pricking out technique, which involves pushing the needle into the skin and then flicking it out, hand poking is slower but less painful. Yeah, that sounds awful. (laughs) Another tattooing method used amongst the ancient Inuit borrows from the concept of sewing. So after they dip a thread in the ink, the artist sews the thread through the skin to leave pigment behind wherever the needle enters and exits the the skin. The Inuit originally used a sharpened bone to break the skin, but quickly adapted to metal needles when they became more available. Hand tapping, which I believe is what we see here in this clip, comes from Indonesia and requires two wooden sticks. You have a sharp piece of wood or buffalo horn that's attached to a short stick, and then a second stick taps on the first stick to push the makeshift needle into the receiver's skin. An assistant called a skin stretcher must hold the skin taut throughout the process. And I'm pretty sure this hand tapping method is what you see in most Pacific Islander cultures when they have their tattoos. I have to admit that I recognize this equipment mostly because this is the sort of equipment they use in Moana. Mm. There's a brief little scene of tattooing. And that's exactly what they're doing. They've got the two sticks, one with a needle on it, and they're tapping the back of the needle with the other stick. It's definitely not as quick a process as modern tattooing because modern tattoo needles move so quickly. They also have multiple needles. Right. You've got the single needle for fine detail work. You've got brush needles, which are several needles (laughs) in a row for filling in large areas. Tattooing before the advent of modern equipment was very methodical. We've been seeing the tattoo the whole time and then looking at these sketches. That's a lot of tattooing. Especially because they insisted on having a darkened in circle. It would have been so much easier if they just made it that the circle was not filled in. It was just a hollow circle with a big dark arrow pointing up to the mountain. It would have been a lot faster and a lot simpler, but... We're so far into this movie, it's not really worth arguing about the specific design of the tattoo at this point, I guess. Yeah, it's fine. It is what it is. (laughs) It's at this point that Helen enters the hut. She has found a little bouquet of flowers and has this huge smile on her face. Whatever she found in those other huts, she's very excited by. I have to wonder if the people who lived in this small village had any sort of food preservation method. That kept past their expiration. Ooh. How long do you think 
this hut has been in this condition. How long have those people been dead, oh, do you think? I'd have to say maybe about five to seven years. If Enola is nine years old, I can imagine her leaving the island at about three and then everybody who stayed behind on the island, or maybe just these two people who stayed behind on the island, were super old and died immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. So thinking about five to seven years of food preservation, I don't think it's impossible. It's kind of hard to think about because the way that we preserve food for that long would require technology. It would require canning, mm-hmm. which is removing all of the air, all of the air from a vessel and then sealing it. You also have to cook it to a certain temperature to destroy anything that might be in there. That They didn't have that same technology available, but that certainly doesn't mean they didn't have food preservation techniques. Right. But five to seven years, I don't know. I'm thinking mostly of... Fish jerky? Stuff that is dried, salted, packed into maybe clay or earthenware jugs, and then sealed with wax. Like if Helen stumbled into one of those huts and just found giant barrels full of salt and meat. That does seem reasonable. Yeah, it does. Salt does a pretty good job of drying things out. Very much does. keeping stuff from growing. (laughs) But yeah, Helen is instantly made somber by the sight of these two dead bodies. And Enola presses past Helen, doesn't seem to notice the bodies at all. No, she doesn't. She makes a beeline for the thing that is supposed to be meaningful to her. Yeah, there's a silver box sitting on that table, and as she opens it up, there's a crank inside, and it turns out that it's a music box. Now, this music box is supposed to have significance to Enola. The music that plays in the box is supposed to be the same tune that she's been humming throughout this entire movie. Have you been paying attention to the music that she's been humming? A little bit. I never felt like there was a tune that could be picked out. It Uh felt like she was just randomly humming notes. Yep. I never, ever paid attention to the music that she was humming. Right. And so the significance of this moment is completely lost on me. You know what would have been really, really helpful that would have enabled us to make that connection is that she was humming a tune that we know. That would have been very helpful. That we could hear a few notes of it, like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. If she started humming just a few notes of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, we would know what she was humming. Mm -hmm. And then we would be able to make the connection when the music box started playing it. But it's just some random tune. Now that Enola has entered the hut, something occurred to me unpleasantly. I've never felt the need to think about this movie from a racial point of view, because it just is. We see people of other races throughout the movie, but it makes sense that the people in this community were Tibetan, and Enola is supposed to be of this community, and she is very not Tibetan. She is very white. Yep. I was thinking about that. Now, Everest is an international destination. It is. And a lot of people know that Everest is the highest peak on Earth. So in my mind... The justification for Enola being portrayed by an actress who is of a Caucasian persuasion, to me, says that when the waters started to rise, that there were people of all nations and all peoples who went to Everest as a way to flee the rising waters. So, most likely, 
the more affluent I was going to say the rich people in the world. <laughs> yeah. Probably got on their boats, sailed over to Everest and said, "Oh, good. There's land here. Let's get off the boat and start living here as well." And the folks that were there already were like, "Cool. Genetic diversity. Come on." In all seriousness, when it comes to Waterworld, hundreds of years after a cataclysm that flooded the world, there should be a lot less racial diversity. There really should be. Everybody should pretty much be mixed together at this point. That being said, we've already mentioned earlier in this podcast about how communities can be very isolated. Mm-hmm. Atolls popping up in very specific geographic locations and reflecting the population of the people who built those atolls from the nations that they cropped up from. But in a situation like people of all nations of the world flocking to Everest and breeding together, Enola, in all seriousness, should just be a mix of everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been very cool if they had cast an Asian of any sort mm -hmm. in that role. And I think it would have done some good things for the movie, making it super obvious that Helen is not her mother, would have done some things to make Enola more of an other. Like, yeah. oh, she obviously doesn't belong. You don't have to try and cover up her tattoo. We all know she doesn't belong here. We all know she is not Helen's daughter. To be able to not hide that fact. I kind of like that idea. I think it would have been cool if they had cast a, an Asian actress. Mm. Not to begrudge Tina Majorino the opportunity to act in a major Hollywood movie. But I'd have to agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> As Enola is listening to the music in this box, she says very simply, I'm home. It's lucky for them that they didn't land somewhere else on the island because there are probably more than just these three huts. Mm, yeah, for sure. They very well could have stumbled onto a different set of huts and Enola would have been like, this is familiar, but it's not quite my home. Seems like a neighboring hut somehow. <laughs> yeah, another one of those conveniences that they so quickly stumble upon her home. One of those very welcome conveniences, because as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we're 160 minutes into this movie. We don't need to spend five minutes watching them going from hut to hut or exploring around the coastline. Mm -hmm. We don't need those. The proper place for that is the novelization. For this and the next two episodes, I only have one selection flagged from the novelization because Max Allen Collins gets to these scenes and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so close to being done. I just got to wrap this up super oh, quick. Oh, that's a shame because this could have been the most interesting part of the movie. Exactly. It's the answers to the questions we've been asking the whole time. And it, frankly, falls a little short. Yeah. Just one statement of I'm home and that's it is just not satisfying at right. all. I'm sure Max Allen Collins had maybe two or three other scripts that weekend that he had to get through. So <laughs> I can understand his eagerness to be done with this movie as much as we might have an eagerness to be done with this movie. <laughs> Helen turns to the others, asks, where's the Mariner? And Gregor says he was outside. Helen leaves, and then Gregor rushes over to the table and grabs one of the copies of the tattoo. And I imagine that Gregor wants to show Helen, look, look, this is where the tattoo came from. I think Helen has already worked that out. 
based on what she's seen, and I don't believe she needs Gregor to explain that to her. Right? At this point, does it matter? Right. It doesn't. Like, the tattoo mystery has been solved to relative satisfaction. Mm -hmm. There are other mysteries to get excited about. Okay, maybe I'm going to give Gregor some credit and propose the following scenario. That he wanted to grab the copy of the tattoo, give it to Helen so that Helen can give it to the Mariner. Because all the adults know the Mariner's not going to stick around. Mm -hmm. He's a fish creature. Why would he want to live here? It's obvious that he's not going to stay, that he is going to leave. Everybody but Enola knows it. If the Mariner takes those copies out into the world with him... He can use them to help tell people how to get to the island. Mm -hmm. And he has that goal, or at least yeah, he we're does. going to learn that he in has a that goal weeks. <laughs> in a few weeks when we get to it. Yeah. I'm going to give Gregor some credit. He had this idea like, oh, let's give them to the Mariner. Yeah. And he can pass them out. Proper time. Yeah. Although they should have made copies. I mean, there are multiple copies on the yeah, table. Like, no, more copies. Like, every atoll can have a copy. <laughs> and the Mariner can tell them how to read it. Yep. And tell them what it means. Say, go that way. Helen and the others head outside, and they find the Mariner. He's crouching down. He's pulling grass up from the ground and handling it, checking it out. He's never been in an environment like this before, and it clearly shows. We're distracted by a nearby Winnie. And everybody turns and sees a small herd of several horses galloping by. This is another carryover from the Raider script. As I have likely mentioned many times before, in the Raider script, the Mariner lives on a barge. And the barge has a winch power system. Yes. And he hooks a horse up to that winch power system. And the horse just walks in a circle and it powers all sorts of different things. On the barge. Whatever the Mariner needs done is controlled by this horse. And so them seeing the horses on this island, kind of a callback to the Raider script. It's also a direct callback to the pictures that Enola was drawing in Gregor's tower back on the atoll. The creature that she drew when Gregor came up behind her and said, oh, what are you drawing? It was a horse. And here, for all of the adults to see, are horses. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of vindication for Enola. Yeah. The community as a whole saw her as an oddity and maybe feared her because she was an oddity and didn't believe the things that she drew. And this definitely is a vindication that, no, 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 these are real things. Mm -hmm. I was right the whole time and you guys are all dead now, so suck <laughs> it. The ultimate revenge of living <laughs> your enemies. <laughs> Focusing back on the Mariner, though, he is a man so entirely out of his element. He has never been on this sort of structure before. He's never been surrounded by this much greenery, this much life. I think it's very appropriate that as we push in on the Mariner and he's got this look of near horror, I would say, that in the background you have this swell of bird noise. Yeah, it's like all of the life is crushing down in on him and swallowing him up. It's like a simulated claustrophobia. Yes. And I actually kind of wish they'd gone a little bit further with that and done it a little quicker. I think we actually spend too much time with the Mariner looking anxious. Mm -hmm. That could have been speeded up a little bit and helped along by more nature sounds getting louder and crushing down in on him. Things you don't hear out on the water or under the water. 
I do like, though, that in his anxiousness, he's looking around at all of this life that's making him uncomfortable. And, like, through the trees, he immediately, like, spots a boat. Right. Like, oh, oh, my language. <laughs> that is speaking my language. I can find comfort. I can find a home on that thing over there. Mm-hmm. And he, like, zeroes in on it. This boat sitting off to the side is one of many that were created. Oh, I absolutely pictured like a Moana thing where there's a whole bunch of boats because these people had to be seafarers. Mm -hmm. First of all, they had to wonder if there was other dry land out there. If they were experiencing colony collapse, we've talked about it before that they probably sent out scouting parties. They needed people. So I'm sure there were all sorts of boats. Yeah, they got to return the heart of Tefiti to keep the... Oh, gosh, what was the creeping blackness in Moana called? Was it anything specific? It wasn't anything specific. Honestly, it's been a while since I've watched Moana. Oh, my goodness. It has been a while since I've watched Moana. With every passing moment, I feel like Moana is an acceptable movie to watch during hiatus. You know, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of thematic similarities between this closing scene and Moana. Maybe I'll just add Moana to the Patreon list Right, stuff like, that we'll watch. Yeah, I think maybe a Patreon movie weekend around when this comes out, yeah. we can watch Moana. <laughs> I think one of the things I appreciate most about the time that we take with the Mariner looking anxious is that he and Helen get a chance to look at each other across a distance, and there is an understanding that they both have one towards another that is the result of the time they've spent together. As tumultuous and difficult as it's been, they've reached a point where words are not necessary, especially considering that next week's episode is the Mariner having a conversation that is basically everything that would be said between him and Helen. The nature of their relationships are different between the Mariner and Helen and the Mariner and Enola, but... A lot of the same sentiments can be applied to both. Mm -hmm. This is a good spot for us to stop for this week. We'll put a pin in this. We'll come back. The Mariner will decide that it's time for him to leave, which means that he has to break the news to Enola. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 81. We'll see you next time. 